This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 12, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The United States is pretty special when it comes to the protection of a broad conception of the freedom of speech. In many other countries, either insulting the government or the dominant religion can land you in jail. And in China, even protesting with blank sheets of paper sends a very clear message about the restriction of a basic liberty. Jacob Michangama is author of Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media. We spoke last week. The United States, of course, has had a long and for a while, I guess, uncertain struggle with respect to speech. But the First Amendment appears to be pretty clear. This U.S. Supreme Court seems to be pretty clear in its interpretation of it. Um, But uh, internationally, how special is the U.S. with respect to speech? Well, there certainly is a... uh a very real degree of free speech except exceptionalism in the US uh especially when it comes to uh what we might call viewpoint absolutism um um so for instance uh, no um government restrictions on on hate speech on, unless it reaches uh some some fairly high thresholds uh and and in in general it it uh it takes a lot for the government to to be allowed to to restrict free speech uh, in in the U.S. as opposed to the European Union, for instance, where all member states are obliged to prohibit certain types of uh, hate speech, uh, that this also follows from international human rights law and is uh, integrated in all European democracies in their criminal laws. Uh, So so in that sense, um, the U.S. is is definitely an outlier. And in terms of uh, public attitudes, of course, I've spoken with uh, Cato's Emily Eakins about uh, public attitudes in the United States, and we sort of came to the conclusion that everybody in America loves free speech right up until somebody says something they don't like. Yeah. Yeah. That's also what we found. So my my organization, uh, the Future Free Speech Project, did a survey of attitudes towards free speech in 33 countries around the globe uh, in, in 2021. And we did actually sort of a composite measure, if you like, uh, of uh, attitudes towards free speech in those countries. And I think the U.S. came in at fourth, uh, whereas the the Nordic uh, countries um, sort of generally outperformed. Uh, but I mean, we're talking about tiny differences. But it's very true. Actually, even globally, if you ask people around the world globally whether they think free speech is very important, everyone says, yes, free speech is very important. But then you ask them about supposedly conflicting values, and then you see huge differences in degrees of tolerance towards free speech. So around the world, then, uh, you know, how do attitudes differ uh, among the public? Yeah. So, for instance, if you go to um, Islamic countries, Islamic majority, Muslim majority countries, you will generally see a very low degree of tolerance for religious offense. Um, so, so no blasphemy, please. Uh, whereas in in most uh, Western countries, you will see uh, a high degree of tolerance of that. You will also see that in countries like Russia, for instance, um, there's a very low degree uh, of tolerance for uh, speech that is uh, denigrates the, the national flag, uh, for instance, which also in, in Western countries, tolerance is higher. But you also see differences within Western countries. So Germany, for historical reasons, probably has a very low degree of tolerance for speech that is offensive to minorities, whereas in the US and also Scandinavian countries, that degree, uh, degree of tolerance rises to, uh, I think, uh, above 60%. 
Um, so, but but generally, you can make some sort of general differences depending on on culture, for instance, uh, between countries and the degree of tolerance for speech. And you said no blasphemy, please, but that's putting it mildly uh, when it comes to how a lot of uh, Muslim majority countries handle uh, what they what they deem to be blasphemy. That is true. So I think um, I don't know the latest number, but but at, at uh, so the la- last number I think I saw was that around a dozen or so Muslim majority countries had formal uh, death penalty for blasphemy and or apostasy. Now these death penalties are very rarely executed, but you know if you're someone like Raif Badawi, for instance, the Saudi Arabian uh, um, free thinker who wrote sort of skeptical, atheistic uh, things on his blog. He still spent a long time in prison, uh, was sentenced to th- a thousand lashes, and is now living in house arrest somewhere. And, you know, you have people languishing on death row in Pakistan for um, Facebook uh, comments or or even sort of neighborly disputes between religious minorities and uh, or, or different religious groups that can that can result in in blasphemy charges. So so that's that's a very low degree of tolerance for for blasphemy. Yes. So uh, you know, if you can, uh, is there really a difference? in uh, states that crack down on speech. I know, I know in some Muslim-majority countries, it's against is speech against Islam. In China, for example, we, you know, we have the example of Jimmy Lau and Apple Daily of uh, against the regime. Uh, is, there, is there much of a difference in uh, a lot of these countries? Well, very often in, in countries that punish blasphemy, and that was certainly also the case, in in uh, in Western Europe, uh, up until um, not that many centuries ago, and even in colonial America, where where blasphemy could be punished severely, um, you know, religion and politics tend to blend together. So uh, criticizing the re- criticizing religion is tantamount to criticizing the government, and vice versa. So you, now you see, for instance, in Iran. Some of the protesters against the regime are being punished, sentenced to death for waging war against God. Uh, and of course, waging war against God means going against the theocratic regimes. And let's not forget that many, you know, these are, some of them are, you know, they, they may be atheists, but some of them might also just be heterodox Muslims who don't want to live in a theocratic regime, who wants a more secular state, even if they may still be religious. What do you make of these protests in China? I believe they're called the white paper protests or blank paper protests, where people are just holding up blank sheets of paper as uh, as a means of protest. Yeah, I think it's an ingenious uh, picture into how it's impossible for even the most totalitarian state to completely crack down on all types of dissent because people will use um, will contextualize and, and, and use clever devious way of undermining uh, censorship uh, and of course it also you know you you basically force the regime to show its true colors if it throws people in prison for holding up uh, a blank piece of paper the same thing happened in, in Russia when it was when it was banned you know to call the, the invasion of Ukraine a war uh, people would ultimately stand with, with blank pieces of paper and they would be carried away by burly uh, Russian security forces um, so so I think that it's a clever way uh, of really demonstrating the lens to which um, authoritarian regimes are willing to crack down on free speech in order to uh, ensure their hold on on power 
it it really is brilliant uh and it it brings into very sharp relief the degree to which a state is uh wants to exert its own uh power uh are there what are the biggest problems uh that you see with speech around the world you know to the extent that attitudes are uh very uh somewhat but there are countries where speech is not resp- respected uh not given uh protection uh by the state and yet there is this broad public uh desire for fewer restrictions on the ability of people to speak to one another yeah so i think there you know uh, so broadly speaking um democracy and free speech has been in decline for more than a decade uh, and those two things go hand in hand. Uh, free speech would typically be the very first freedom that an authoritarian regime or one that aims to be an authoritarian regime will crack down on. It's sort of one o- page page one in the one hundred one on on how, how to become a dictator. Um, so that's you know that's a that's a very old and classic example. Then I think in democracies. Um, the problem is slightly different. So we mentioned in the beginning that in the United States, the law has probably never afforded a stronger protection of speech than is the case today under the current interpretation of the First Amendment. Now, that is that has not always been the case. Um, but arguably, the culture of free speech sustaining um, sort of the, the civil libertarian ethos that 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 sustains this understanding of the First Amendment, I think, is is fraying around the eight edges are due to polarization in the U.S. So, if you ask Republicans and Democrats about their red lines on free speech, you will see that they follow sort of partisan uh, uh, lines, and I, that is, I think, quite unhealthy for the long term. Um, flourishing of of uh, free speech protection because if those who are uh, who will be the the future legal guardians of the free speech are uh, sort of educated to 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 view free speech with suspicion uh, or if the judiciary becomes completely sort of um, partisan then uh, the current understanding of 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 the first amendment is is unlikely to uh, to hold ground, uh, and and the First Amendment has changed a lot over time. You don't have to go back very far before you know in the fifties where it was okay to um, punish people for being members of socialist or communist parties, uh, for instance, or for southern states to crack down on on um, on the civil rights movements and 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 their protests uh, against uh, white supremacy and so on. So so f- the, you know free speech exceptionalism might have been baked into the wording of the First Amendment, but it certainly has not been baked in from the very beginning in, into sort of the institutions and sort of the judicial decisions of the Supreme Court uh, in, in the U.S. in U.S. history. So, you know, I quote, <laughs> this quote just sticks with me for, uh, or has for a long time, which is Greg Lukianoff saying, you know, how am I better off not knowing what you really think? Yeah, um, no, I- <laughs> and so I, I wonder to what extent can we re-energize the desire among at least Americans to accept fully, to embrace fully the grand bargain that the a robust freedom of speech uh, gives us. Yeah, no, I, I think first of all, you need, um, well, or maybe not first of all, but you certainly need 
truly principled uh, defenders of free speech and Greg Lukianov and, and, and FIRE, uh, which is now the foundation for, in, for individual rights and, and expression. And full disclosure, I'm a, I'm a senior fellow uh, <laughs> there. Uh, but I think you know their expanded mission aims to do that. And so I think it's extremely important that free speech defenders are not seen as you know, being a, a, a sort of a cover for one or the other sides. They have to uh, be equally uh, annoying to the right and the left and, and everyone else uh, and be equally uh, condemning when, when, you know, it's Republicans or Democrats or independents who, who, who pose a threat to uh, free speech. Um, and then I think, you know, in, in the U.S. today, um, uh, many progressives and, and liberals have become suspicious about free speech where they used to arguably be sort of its core constituency um, because they view free speech as being a threat to minorities, to to democracy, and so on. And that, to me, is you know an incredibly shallow reading of American history uh, when you see who has benefited from 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 free speech has been overwhelmingly. Uh, marginalized, persecuted groups, racial, political minorities, women, um, and and so on. And, you know, I don't think you, uh, you magically reached a point in American history where you can say, oh, we, we, we reached a perfect equilibrium. Free speech was a nice principle. Now, you know, we need to, uh, we need to dilute the protection a little bit because we want to protect the perfect nirvana uh, that we, that, that we've reached. No, uh, all human beings are liable uh, to fall prey to what I call Milton's curse, uh, the selective unprincipled defense of free speech and, and the, and the principle of or sort of the process of, of free speech entropy, which, which, which sort of, uh, posits that, that free speech will, um, and, and the commitment to free speech will, will sort of dilute over time and will be tempted by those in power will be tempted to use their powers to, uh, to justify restrictions on free speech. And I think you see that in, in the US, and but you also see it on the other side, right? I think conservatives have had a reasonable cause to, to, to uh, lament about uh, so-called cancel culture in universities and elite institutions. But then what, what, is the, what is the answer? It's Republican-dominated legislatures adopting uh, uh, um, you know, various laws to restrict uh, viewpoints in higher education uh, and and so on, which uh, you know is an frontal assault on the First Amendment and is hardly the way to go about um, uh, defending free speech. Um, so I think you need these kinds of institution and people who are who who are vocally and 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 preferably people from all kinds of side with very different ideas about the common good, but who are united in the belief that free speech is the antithesis of violence and the only means on which you can you can actually compromise. You need radical free speech in order to be able to be pragmatic um, and compromise in in the realm of of politics and also just in the realms of of human flourishment. You know. That that you know you can live with your neighbors, your your spouse, your friends, your colleagues, and be disagree vehemently a, about politics and religions and, and religion and philosophy. But you know you, you you don't need to go to war because you can actually discuss these things these, these things amongst your, your yourselves. And that was not the case going back uh, a few hundred years, even in in the American colonies, where you know you have terrible records of, of people being you know whipped uh, and, and and branded uh, for for having the wrong religious uh, ideas you know even some of the the great founders had um, you know fell prey to to Milton's curse and and were perfectly happy to to punish those who 
who, who, who said seditious things. Um, so, so being aware of the significance and importance of free speech to uh, foundational values of, of, uh, of, of America, including tolerance and respect for minorities, is, I think, also crucial to sort of uh, reconstructing the bulwark of liberty, which, which free speech really is. Yeah, because I imagine, and you make note of this in in your book, you know, imagine a world in which Frederick Douglass was never allowed to give speeches around the country, yeah, lamenting, and, and, you know, lamenting the horrors of slavery. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, and and there were, of course, I mean, Frederick Douglass could not, you know, travel to the South and and give a speech. Uh, if he did that, he would be immediately re- re- arrested. He would probably be returned to his uh, quote unquote slave owner, uh, and and uh, uh, so so he couldn't do that, and he held, uh, and so he had to do it in the North. And he, you know, in 1860, he 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 gave a speech in Boston that was that was uh, attacked by white Bostonians who who were not happy with with uh, abolitionist ideas and and that's when he he penned this fabulous speech called uh, a plea for free speech in boston which i think today if you read it it's only like two pages it it really answers all contemporary attacks on free speech uh both you know those from the government but also those from private individuals and also talks about something which is often forgotten that free speech is not only the right of the individual speaker, but it's also the right of the wider community to be able to listen to different viewpoints uh, and make up their own minds. And also, as you as you attributed to to, to Greg Lukianov, sort of you know uh, identify potential threats. How do you know you know if there are dangers uh, to your local community or to to the republic if you don't you know if if if, if you're unable to detect those signals that that people send out when they say extreme things, um, so so um, so yeah, Frederick Douglass is 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 one of the great heroes uh, of uh, of mine. Uh, Ida B. Wells is another person. I mean, I don't think few people have been as brave. So she's basically sets up a, a black-owned newspaper in 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 Memphis, Tennessee, uh, documenting. Um, lynchings and, and and sort of giving the true stories, and she ultimately her newspaper is is burned to the ground, and she has to flee because uh, uh, because a white mob wants to kill her basically. And she's also very adamant about the importance of free speech. So even her newspaper is, is called the Memphis Free Speech. Uh, <laughs> um, and you know you could go on and on. You know uh, go back uh, less than a hundred years, people, women uh, suffragettes in the U.S. were arrested for. For burning an effigy, you know, uh, I think it was Woodrow Wilson uh, protesting against the, the the lack of of, of voting rights for women. Um, uh, so, so their rights to free speech was was being denied, uh, and and the right to free speech, of course, was 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 uh, decisive in ultimately securing the right uh, to vote for women. But um, I, I think a lot of people convinced themselves that, well, yeah, these were really worthy causes. Free speech was important for that. But now we don't want to. Uh, you know, we can distinguish um, other groups um, from from that, and and we don't need to uphold free speech uh, for those. But but I think the early pioneers of free speech saw very clearly that you actually need to uphold free speech for extremists uh, in order to um, to to uphold free speech for all. Do you do you have a sense that a lot of the opposition to to freedom of speech in the United States takes sort of a I don't know, regulatory tack that is, well, we're going to use these other uh, these other tools uh, for of regulation in the U.S. We have a massive regulatory state and we're going to use that to 
lean on people in private industry and say, uh, you must get rid of this speech and you must allow this speech over here. It seems to me that, you know, it's, you know, private institutions are doing a lot of, 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 um, speech policing, uh, whether, you know, it's, 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 it's universities and, and of course now, uh, social media platforms and, um, it's interesting with the so-called Twitter files, which, uh, of course, true to form, were instantly sort of uh, being interpreted through uh, partisan lenses. Uh, one side sort of saw them as as evidence of collusion and sort of uh, almost fascism, and the other as as a big nothing burger. I, I I tend to see them as as not that surprising, but still revealing that governments will use informal channels to lean on the the basic infrastructure of of, of the modern public digital square, uh, which I think is is a very unhealthy uh, development. Um, because first of all, it blurs the line of the of the First Amendment protections, and, and it also happens without any scrutiny and, and transparency. Uh, so that is that is certainly a uh, a concern. Um, and of course now. Uh, it seems that there, you know, there are also these laws uh, being adopted in various states trying to to regulate social media, and I think it's you know they leave big question marks about the robustness of uh, free speech in in the in the digital sphere going forward. So it'll be very interesting to see how federal courts uh, come down uh, on on this question. Jacob Michangama is author of Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media. It's a new year, and I want to thank everyone who supported the Cato Podcast sponsor program with a gift. You can do so as well. It's never too late. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor, and thank you.